Welcome back to True Crime on Easy Street. That click of the pen that you heard. What click of the pen? That was Scott. He's got a great story. He's ready today. That's the uh, journalist in him. Mm, Yeah, it is. I guess I'm just used (laughs) to having a pen in my hand all the time. Welcome to us today. I'm Kelly Turner. I'm not a doctor. My name is Scott Wright. I'm a mediocre journalist, and I'm about to prove it. Well, I'm Katie Givens, and I'm not a lawyer, and we will take Scott's pen away. Don't worry. Yes. <laughs> it's not going to be clicking in your ear this whole no, no, time. No, no. I'll hide it behind my back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, guys, welcome. What a beautiful day as we get a little bit closer each week to Thanksgiving. Well, I'm going to hijack your story because it's a lot warmer here today than it was where I was yesterday with Katie's husband, Shane. We were in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's why my voice sounds a little bit different today because I was screaming at the... <clears throat> Pittsburgh Steelers because they're terrible. You look a little hungover too. Just uh, saying. I didn't, I mean, I'm I didn't have a thing to drink yesterday. I was so disgusted <laughs> that I couldn't even, I didn't think that would even wash it away. So I just sat on the plane and grumbled and leaned out the window and looked at the at Knoxville and Chattanooga fly by in the dark. It was all I could do just to not poke a hole in the window and stick my head out. I'm sorry. I watched so the bad. Saints and the Titans yesterday. Uh, how did that turn out? Mm. You didn't see the end? No. Oh, never mind. <laughs> My son could tell you because okay. he, he was all into it because he loves Alabama, so he was wanting to know the players Derek from Alabama. Derrick Henry mm-hmm. is a running back for the Titans. He's injured. Right. He's currently injured. Then there's... Uh, Didn't y'all go to the Bama game this weekend? We did. We did. Oh, yeah? I was up in the, I was up in the Bama games. Wow. Up. I know. Okay. I know. Y'all are all about this football this weekend. I watched no football. What did you watch? A lot of movies. I was home alone with my dog. Oh, yeah. We was, just snuggled up. I, I snuggled and watched movies. I love that. I borrowed her husband for the weekend, so it was just she yeah. and Pepper uh, mm-hmm. at the Givens residence. Well, I got to uh, sit on campus uh, at the University of Alabama and watch Auburn's game, which was... That was a great first half for you guys. Horrific. Yeah. I don't know what... I, I, <laughs> yeah. What do you want me to say? <laughs> mm-hmm. What? What what words do you want me to use? I, I don't saw know. these. Uh, Shane and I were at the uh, casino that is adjacent to Heinz Field in Pittsburgh, watching the game, all of the games from the sports book. And they flashed a graphic at one point that said that uh, in the history of Auburn football, they are sixty three and zero. Were sixty three and zero if they ever achieved a twenty five point lead. And at one point, they were ahead twenty eight to three in that game in the first half. So. Uh, that was the first time they had ever squandered a lead. Of now we're sixty three and one. Yeah, still pretty good, but n- not good for you if <laughs> you're the one who saw the, yeah. the sting away. Yeah, I know if you were the one who saw the red X actually happen. <sighs> not good. Anyways, I'll shut up about it. I'm glad you guys had a good time this weekend. We had a great time and came back with a lot of stuff. Uh, Katie is going to spend the next three days washing black and gold T-shirts and towels and all kinds of uh, swag and scarves. Merch. Oh yeah, all of the stuff that we don't have. I got some great ideas for some designs for our shirts when we <clears throat> get them. Whatever that, whenever, whenever that is. <laughs> uh, maybe next Christmas. Uh, but yeah, so uh, she's going to be doing a lot of black and gold laundry. So no bleach, please. Yeah, I'd like to do the whole feminist laugh. Like, huh, who's doing the laundry? No, yeah, I will be doing the laundry. Yeah. I didn't know that. I, I was uh, sorry. Uh, yeah. I just so assumed. hopefully we'll have our T-shirts ready. You know, I would have loved to for us to have had them ready for the holidays for you to get your mm-hmm. loved ones uh, a, a T-shirt to yeah. put in their stocking. But maybe for Valentine's Day. Maybe so. I think I mean, it could happen. Well, you're I think the PR our- department. So <laughs> whenever you decide that that's what we're going to do next, let us know. That's and, terrible. And Katie and I will jump on board. That's very scary. <laughs> that I'm the, I'm the PR department. Well, Scott. Yes, ma'am. What are we going to talk about this week? 
We're going to talk about a case that took place in, uh, over in Rome, Georgia again, over in uh, Floyd County uh, in 1946. And the, the, the tie for us here in Cherokee County is that the lady who uh, was the perpetrator of this crime was from Cherokee County. Her family lived here before she married someone and moved to Rome, Georgia. And so that's how we drew the dots and got this story. And there's been a book that's been written about it. It was, it was written back in 2010 by a fellow named Mike Ragland. And I remember when Mike came through town after he had just written that book and we were over at the uh, Cherokee County Historical Museum, which is right across the street from my office on Main Street and Center. And he was signing books and telling everybody about the story. And I remember being surprised and not knowing anything about it at the time. Again, mediocre journalist, how would I? But <laughs> laugh into the mic if you're going to laugh, please, just so there's not dead air. <laughs> Uh, at least let him know I landed the joke. So um, I remember when that happened or when the story came up, but I didn't know anything about it. And I, I fiddled around and never read the book until you assigned us this story a few weeks ago. And then I realized that it was probably going to be exciting to handle and, and to deal with and talk about. Um, if there's a problem with the uh, amount of material that you could research to try and do a podcast about the story, it was that I... I did some uh, internet research. I, I Googled some things, and there's some transcripts out there from the original trials, which I'm sure uh, Katie has read since she's not a lawyer. So I just read the book since I'm a mediocre journalist. Mm -hmm. And the book is written much in the same vein as In Cold Blood. We keep coming back to Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, but I guess if you're going to try to write a good book about a crime that took place and you, there are a lot of blanks that you have to fill in because you don't really know exactly what happened. And you, you go from, you have, you have point A and you have point C, and you just have to kind of guess what point B was. And that's kind of what Mike Ragland did with this book. And the book tells a really good story, and it goes back into a lot of things that were going on. Uh, in, the 40, in 46, the world was just taking its breath from having fought World War II for six years in some parts of the world. We didn't fight in it for that long, but some parts did. And so there was a lot of turmoil in the world here at home, People were getting, trying to get back to normal. Uh, rationing was starting to come to an end, so you could put sugar in your coffee again for the first time in three years. Um, you could put new tires on your car. You could put more than a dollar's worth of gasoline in your car, whatever the, the minimum was. They, I think they got vouchers. They, you got a piece of paper every month in the mail for different commodities for sugar and flour and gasoline and the, the things that you needed. But because of the war effort, a lot of that stuff was rationed so that they could send it overseas to the boys who were fighting. So one of the things that Mike Ragland did a really good job of was weaving into this book called Bertha that you can get on Amazon uh, or some of the other, no, uh, Barnes & Noble, if you'd like to read it there. Um, he, he does a really good job of weaving in what was going on in the country in 1946. And he also did a really good job of describing what it was like to live and work in Rome, Georgia in 1946. And he, he talks about a lot of places and we all go to Rome. Uh, it's about 30 minutes away from here. So a lot of times, and we've said this plenty of times before, if you want to go to the movies in a theater or a chain restaurant, uh, an I, outback. I was just there this morning. It's where I go to the doctor. Exactly. A lot of people go there. That's very, uh, very uh, pertinent to the story because a lot of people, even back then, if you wanted good medical attention, you, you drove over to Rome, Georgia. Now it's a 30-minute drive. Back then, it was probably a couple of hours. Just the roads weren't quite as good, and the cars didn't travel quite as fast. But it was still where you went to get medical attention if you lived in Cherokee County, Alabama, and Floyd County across the state line is adjacent to you. And so that plays into the story as well. Um, but 
he talks about a lot of the places that Barry College is mentioned in Broad Street, and the you guys have been on Broad Street and seen the Partridge Cafe, uh, and it's it's been yeah. three or four other things in our lifetimes. But back in the forties, it was it was the Partridge Cafe, and it was where there was this local group of businessmen and lawyers and doctors and journalists. Uh, who sat every morning and had a cup of coffee. They were called the Breakfast Club. And so the, one of the things that Mike uh, Raglan did when he pieced this story together, and again, he's filling in a lot of blanks. He's got trial transcripts and newspaper stories from the time. And then he's got to figure out what these people might have sat around and talked about, how the information that went from the courtroom to the journalists might have taken place. And he surmises in a couple of uh, instances that it happened at the breakfast club at the Partridge Cafe. And he explains in the opening of the book that, hey, look, he, he tells you everything that I just told you. Uh, I, I didn't know all of this stuff. I, I know this area. I know some of these people. I've met some of them since as I was doing research for the book. So it's, he, he kind of has to figure out what their specific dialogue was when they sat and had, and had these conversations. Um, I, there are spots in the book where there are typos and grammatical errors. And if you go on to Goodreads and read some of the reviews of Bertha, that is the one complaint that you will get. Everybody loves the book. They love the way that the story was uh, handled and the way it progresses from the beginning to the end. But somebody could have done a little bit. Somebody should have read it one more time with a red pen in their hand. Last time I'll do that. And uh, fixed it one more time. No, it's not. Let's just be honest. All right. I'm so I mean, the pen. I mean, throwing did, the pen over my shoulder. Did he have like a real editor? Do we think his wife just read it through? Or like, uh, it, he mentions actually in the opening oh, yeah. of the book that he had somebody go through and edit the book for him, and and he was very complimentary of the job that they did. And I just think maybe he didn't read that final draft. And I don't want to. I'm not going to mention any names. Look, I've made mistakes too. We all have, but we've all read a book, a professionally done book from Random House, and I've you read and a you book. Yes. and you stumble across that one typo, and you, it just jumps out at you. It's oh, like somebody yes. pokes you in the eye. What the hell? How did that happen? Yep, and and it, that happens, it's almost like it, it offends you. Yes. Like, how in the world did this make this past well, editing? Well, in Bertha, that happens. To do that. Yeah, in Bertha, that happens about a dozen times. So I it's too a, many. I had a textbook in college that had about four or five typos within two pages, and I think they literally just. Missed those pages yeah, in the editing so. process, and it like drove me nuts. Yeah. Like, well, and it, and you, it makes you mad because of how much you pay for, especially a text. Well, it's just you know, if you like to read and you appreciate the written word, mm-hmm. you you just you you would think that people who would sell you a book would as well. And somebody made a mistake here, mm-hmm. and, but that's hated, not. I always hated sending an email. I read it five and six and ten times. Yeah, it, it frustrates. Sure. And yeah. then if something ever slips through, it just it makes me oh, so angry. Same here, especially, you know, the three of us, we're on our own little text group where we talk about the show and the things that we're going to do next and whatnot. And if I ever let one slip through, I'm like, oh, oh te- they're going to mention that terrible. on the next show. No, no, autocorrect is horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really bad. Um, but anyway, Katie said right before we went on the air that a lot of this case actually takes place in the courtroom. So I'm just going to kind of set this thing up. And, uh, and I feel like it's a thing where we can go back and forth because I know not having really studied the court section of it as well as I should have, because I only found the transcripts earlier today. Uh, I should have made that uh, Google search before noon on uh, recording day, but I didn't. So I'm going to probably have some questions for you about exactly how some of that works, because I learned a lot of stuff today that I didn't know once I found the court transcripts. 
But basically what happens is this 28-year-old, I'm sorry, this uh, Bertha was younger than 28. It was Leroy Hill, her husband, who was 28 years old, and he passed away on February the 14th, 1946. On Valentine's Day of all days. And he had been in the bed sick for about three days, and he'd been vomiting and throwing up. And Bertha, his, his wife, had been, uh, she, they got married and moved to Rome. And then Bertha had her parents come and move in with her from Cherokee County, and they moved over to Rome, and they all lived. I don't know if they lived in the same house or maybe in adjacent houses, but she had them come with her because she'd lived with her parents for most of her life until... Uh, I think maybe even after she got married, Katie, is that right? Did you get well, to that? Well, she'd been married once before. This is her second Correct. husband. And I think they were very close. Yeah. And it was actually, I, I think I texted you guys this last week. It turns out that I was related to her first husband because my paternal grandmother was a Gossett. And Bertha Hill's first husband's name was Neil Gossett, I believe. And I asked my Aunt Julia um, a couple of weeks ago when we first started doing the research. Uh, if there was any connection. And she said, oh yeah, your grandmother used to tell stories about seeing Bertha and her first husband, Neil, ride a bicycle together uh, around the neighborhood. Was like one of those two-person bikes? Nope, that was like oh. he was pedaling and she was sitting on the handlebars kind of a situation. Oh, oh so she's just a- Daredevil. Riding. And, but I just have to say, so what a guy who's, you know, yeah, not only will I marry you, but your parents can also- Come live with us. I guess this is a different time too, though. We're it, in the forties. Yeah, mean, I think that was probably a little. I think the. I think is being in common? the. Well, I think being in the middle of World War II had a lot to do with that because okay. a lot of people were trying to consolidate and uh, yeah, and, like and you said, save you were money. About the rationing, okay. Right. If you okay. if everybody can load up in the car and go to town, and I go, I walk over to the post office while you walk over to the department store, and I walk over to the five and dime, and we get three shopping trips done in one. Half a tank of gas. I mean, I don't want to speak for KT, but I, I think that if I just said, "Well, Babs has got to come with me," mm, Babs being your mom, that's my his mother. We call my mother. His right. mother. Is that what he calls her? Uh, everybody calls her that. Okay. might have been a deal breaker. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I say that with love. You hooked him before you told him about that. Yeah, I got it. Uh, and she so, doesn't live with us, by the way. Let me not start a rumor. She oh, live okay. With us. But, All right. Yeah. I'm, th- I'm saying I don't think he would have. Not yet, anyway. KT, are you listening? We know KT's not listening because he is not a fan of the no, show. He doesn't listen. No, you're correct. He's not. Nor does he have the attention span for 45 minutes of <laughs> solid entertainment. Um, anyway, so so back to uh, back to Bertha Hill and her second husband Leroy. And it turns out Leroy, he might have been a little bit of a ladies' man because he was dealing with a case of, among other things, syphilis. Uh, and one of the thing, one of one of the treatments for syphilis is a medicine that, at the time, it contained just a little bit of arsenic. But syphilis wouldn't be what's got him sick in the bed, right? Correct. Okay, go ahead. So something else is bothering Leroy, and it's uh, it's abdominal in nature. He's vomiting constantly. This ha- this goes on for two or three days, and in. Uh, and in Bertha, Mike Raglan describes, and again, he's piecing things together from court transcripts that happened months and years later. There were a couple of other women who were family members who were helping Bertha to take care of Leroy while he was getting sick, or while he was sick. Uh, and he, did, he wasn't getting any better. He was vomiting regularly. And had he, by any chance, had he been to Aniston, Alabama? Uh, no, During but <laughs> we'll get to that. Okay. Just, just <laughs> we'll get to back, another similarity going there. Back to the, yeah, yeah. Okay. we'll get to a similarity. So uh, the other women 
say that Bertha is giving him pills that she says she got from the doctor. He doesn't want to go to the doctor. He doesn't want to go to the hospital. He spent some time in the hospital uh, back in December and January, and he's still homesick with whatever his affliction is. And so he's, he's thrown his hands up at the whole idea of going back to the hospital again, as good as the medical care is in Rome, Georgia, as, as it was then and still is today. He didn't want to do that. So on the morning of... Well, I mean, and they should have been able to clear up the syphilis pretty quickly. I mean, yeah, at that time. Yeah. Well, yes, I, yes. I agree. So that's, so yeah, this, that's yeah, not what this is. There's something else going on. Something else is yes. going on here. And uh, it turns out that uh, on the morning of uh, Thursday, February the 14th, 1946, at around 2 a.m., according to Mike Ragland, uh, Leroy Hill passes away. Mm. And the next thing that happens is Bertha has members of her family call Jordan Funeral Home. And that's the one example I will give about a mistake that was made in the book that would have been very easy to, uh, to fix. Uh, Jordan is spelled J-O-R-D-O-N throughout the book. And if you, live in, if you live in Alabama or in this part of the country, maybe even, everybody around here knows that the word J-O-R-D-A-N is pronounced Jordan. Mm-hmm. You would think it's J-E. Yeah. If, if you're an Auburn fan, you go to games at Jordan Hare Stadium. Mm-hmm. So we all know that Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, mm-hmm. is just, it's pronounced the way it is. Yes. But the book has that spelling error in it. And it, that was one of the things that bugged me throughout the book. That would have been so easy to research and fix, but it wasn't. But anyway, so they reach, uh, Bertha reaches out to Jordan Funeral Home here in Center, which is where she's from, don't forget, here in mm-hmm. Cherokee County. So. Mm-hmm. Her mom and dad, uh, her dad died in April of 45, and her mother died in August of 45, and they were both (laughs) buried here in Cherokee County over at Howell Cemetery. I called our friend Bo Jolly 30 minutes before I got here to make sure that I knew exactly where Howell Cemetery was, and I'm going to go over there this week and take pictures of their headstones at Howell Cemetery that Mm -hmm. we can put on our Instagram page, or you guys can delete, and they will never be seen again either way. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to make sure I knew where Howell Cemetery was, and so they are buried there. Do we, how did they die? Or, or did, like, were they sick or did they just? You're getting ahead of me. They take, okay, shut up. Shut <laughs> no, up, no, Kelly. it's fine. No, I want you to ask, but. Okay, yeah. I just didn't want to, like, I'm, I'm, breeze I'm, over that. No, I'm, I'm setting the hook right okay, now. Okay, I got you. Yeah, All I'm right. setting okay. the hook. Okay. So, uh, so Leroy dies, Jordan Funeral Home, the same way as mom and dad were handled the previous year when they passed away within a few months of each other. And this is one of the parts in the book that I don't know if this is actually what happened or if this is one of those spots where Raglan connects point A to point C. Because in the book, so I don't know if it's uh, just a jump in the narrative that, that Mike Raglan does or if there's some documentation of this, but I didn't see it anywhere. But the local health commissioner over in Floyd County, Georgia's name was B.V. Elmore. And in the book, he gets an anonymous phone call that tells him, hey, there's something suspicious about the way Leroy Hill passed away. Is this a female or a male? I don't know that it said. Okay. Uh, just an anonymous call, and he turns it into a narrative where all we hear is Mr. Elmore's side, Dr. Elmore's side of the conversation. Yes, yes, okay, I'll look into it. That kind of brief narrative, which makes me think it's fictitious. Oh. But somehow, Dr. Elmore figured out that this was something worth looking into, and so he did. Okay. And, and his name is B as in boy, and then V as v in... V as in victory. Okay. Yeah, B.V. Elmore. Uh, for, he thought this was suspicious, so he goes out to the house and, and talks to Bertha, who ha, at this point is a grieving widow, by all accounts. 
and she's got relatives there around her and she's back in the bedroom with a blanket over her and sitting up and you know, being consoled by our family members. And so he conducts this interview with her. And again, I, I'm pretty sure this has to be one of those jumps in, in the narrative where Raglan is just filling in blanks. But um, whatever it was that Bertha actually said to him did not assuage his concern that maybe something below board happened here. So the next day, Leroy Hill is, uh, there's an autopsy conducted on his body at a local funeral home in Georgia. And they determined that there is way too much arsenic in his body. Way too much. Uh Oh, way, way, way too much. Like more, not, there is a medicine that, that you would conceivably be prescribed if you were trying to get cured of syphilis that has the tiny bit of arsenic in it. Hmm. But a doctor later said, not this level of arsenic. So, so lethal levels. Not ridiculous lethal levels where uh, the interior of your stomach looks like it has been burned is the way it was described. Gosh. So immediately, uh, Dr. Elmore is suspicious that something didn't go the way that it was supposed to. And he had already been, his, the body of, Leroy's body had already been sent to Alabama to Jordan Funeral Home to be embalmed and buried. They were going to, she wanted him buried the next day. She was wanting this to happen quickly. Quickly. So he puts the kibosh on that and the, the uh, autopsy is conducted. All of this comes back. And so something doesn't look right. So then the Dr. Elmore goes to the Floyd County police department, uh, the sheriff's office. I think it's the police department. And he says, look, guys, something's not right here. We need to conduct an investigation. So that's where we get the autopsy. And then they start doing some more digging. They, they, they talk to relatives and friends who have been around and seen what's going on. And it's someone that gets mentioned, oh, yeah, um, Bertha's mom died back in August of 45. And she the same symptoms. For three days, she was sick in bed, vomiting, green bile, and then she died. Oh, yeah. Hey, you know what? Her dad died back in April of 45. Same thing. So red flags are going up about how this all looks out. Oh, and then the more they investigate, the more they realize that very specifically Bertha herself took out life insurance policies on dad and then mom and then Leroy just within a few weeks of them in the, in the getting sick. In the order they sick. died, dad, mom, Leroy. Yeah. We've heard this one before too. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm starting to wonder who got their idea. Bertha. From get, Bertha. Get your own material. Uh, Bertha okay. came along first. <laughs> this oh, yeah, is 46. That's right. that's Somebody 46? else got this idea. Oh, my goodness. Somebody read Bertha. Well, Somebody, not before 2011 yeah, they that. did. Yeah, not that, or, not that long ago. Okay. Um, but anyway, so the next thing that happens is all of a sudden out of nowhere, and, and I forget exactly the timeline. It may have been two or three days. It had to be within two or three days. Mm-hmm. Leroy Hill's <clears throat> other wife. Excuse me? Yeah. She and her mother figure out that Leroy is dead. And what? so they come from North Carolina and they get involved in all of this. All right. I have a, I've, I'm raising my hand. I have, I have Go, some please. I have some questions. Go. How does he have two wives? That is not legal here. Uh, that, in that the is state correct. of Alabama in mm. 1940, whatever. Or in, in any, 2021. In any, in any date. Yeah. Um, it's not legal in North Carolina. Nope. So, okay. So he has two wives. Does the wife from North Carolina know about birth? I think that what happened is that Leroy and his first wife split and okay. they just never got around to filling out the paperwork. 
So he moves from North Carolina, and a couple of years later, he bumps into Bertha, and they get married. Apparently, according to Raglan and some of the people that he interviewed, Bertha was very, she wasn't the prettiest girl in the world, but she was still attractive and, and uh, uh, batted her eyes and was just had a nice voice, and she had a way of roping in good-looking gentlemen. Well, it also sounds like Leroy got around himself. Bit of a ladies' man. Don't forget the syphilis. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not right. forgetting that, and I'm not forgetting the other wife. So I'm going to go ahead and say Leroy was, you know. For whatever reason, he never got divorced from his first wife. So around her. Um, and, and this throws a wrench into the Bertha's plan because now instead of her being able to, the day after the autopsy, still get Leroy over to the family plot at Howell Cemetery here in Cherokee County. Now, wife and mother, his mother, not her mother, his mother have shown up. So his other wife and Leroy's mother. Correct. From North, North Carolina. Carolina are here. So now Bertha's. Bertha's in a pickle. Uh, her, Bertha's her not next to Ken anymore. Oh, they're right. not legally married. Yeah. Well, I don't know how far it ever got down that road, but what happened is uh, Leroy's mom and his first wife went to a local hotel in Rome after having gone to the police department and described this. They were just as surprised as you guys were, right? They were like, wait a minute, what? Here's another wrench in the works. We've already got the dead mom and dad, and everybody's died from the same symptoms. Now you're telling me that he's already married to someone else? And they want to take his body home and have it buried in North Carolina. So there's another possible kerfuffle that's going to come up. So what the mom says is, look, she, Bertha wanted to come talk to me at the hotel tonight. I want to fill out a warrant for her arrest because I think she poisoned my son and killed him. So the police show up at the hotel, they arrest Bertha and say, look, Bertha, there's a warrant out for your arrest. Until we finish our investigation, we can hold you until we get to the end of it. And that ends up being a months long incarceration for Bertha. Goodness. Yeah. What all was there to look into? Well, just things that they couldn't get to the bottom of exactly whether or not the, it was poison that, that Leroy that Leroy died from. And then they decided that they wanted to um, exhume the bodies of Bertha's parents. Okay. Over at Howell Cemetery. That was a month-long process because you're crossing state lines. The rules are different in Alabama. They had to get a judge in whatever district Alabama, uh, Cherokee okay. County was in in Alabama at the time. So the whole time that this is happening, Bertha is incarcerated at the Floyd County Jail and she's living in the jail cell with the the jailer and his wife who had an apartment back at the time in the Rome jail, the Floyd County jail, I guess, whoever was in charge of the jail lived at the jail. So they, they were there I'm all the time. imagining Mayberry. Ex yeah. Except, you know, uh, Andy had a cot outside yeah. uh, by his desk. And then, sort of thing. being Bertha. Yeah. In the sale. And not right. The so guy. anyway, this process takes a while to get all ironed out. And it, you know, it, it, I guess you could argue that it never gets ironed out because they eventually exhumed the bodies of Mr. and Mrs. Harden. That was uh, Bertha's maiden name. Okay, so they're her parents. Over at Howell Cemetery. Okay. Uh, Paul Jordan, who ran Jordan Funeral Home, he shows up and they have a toxicologist come from Auburn. He's the, at the time, he's the most, uh, the most highly qualified toxicologist in the state of Alabama, and they want to make sure that they do it right. They actually conduct the autopsy at the cemetery. Like under a tent, they dig up Mr. and Mrs. Harden and take out some of their internal organs, 
and box them up and send them off to be tested and put them people, right back in the ground. How long have these people been dead? Well, we're, uh, Mr. Harden died in April of 45. Okay. Mrs. Harden died in August of 45. Okay. And I'm going to guess that this happened somewhere around... Um, this happens about April. April of about, 46. Yeah, it's like maybe March. It's more end of March kind of deal. Yeah. So she's arrested. I think uh, uh, Leroy died on February the 14th. I think that she was arrested maybe two weeks later, Katie, something yeah. like that, first mm-hmm. of about, March. Yeah, about a week or so later. It, it, this is a, this is a dumb question. Is that sanitary to be at the, to just stay there? Well, you got. We're guess, talking about 1946. Most of the, you know, it was it was the year after the war. There's there are no. It wasn't nearly as sophisticated then. They they took them out of the ground, sat them down on the table, opened up the casket, cut them open, took out a couple of organs, put them in some sort of container, put Mister and Missus Harden back together, put them right back in the ground the same day. Probably easier than transporting their whole bodies at the time. They well, that was the have... thing. They had to, the only place to do it back then, there probably wasn't even a hospital yet in Cherokee County. I don't think the first hospital, which is our nursing home today, I don't think it was built until the early 50s. So the first thing you got to do is transport them to Birmingham or Gadsden or somewhere uh, two hours away. And that was before the interstate system. So, gotcha. so okay. it was just, I'm, you know what, yeah, I'm going to sure, call, sure. call that efficient. Yeah, I agree. There I mean, it, it was just the best way to do it. I mean, look, it, you didn't need to scrub up first. This guy's like, I'm a professional. I'm the number one guy in Alabama. Let's just do And they asked, there was, Dig a, them there, up, there was some discussion. Pop them open. Yeah. I got this. There was some discussion in the book. And again, I don't know if this was a leap in, in the, the story or not, but Mr. Jordan, Paul Jordan, who ran the funeral home said, why not do it this way? It's, we're going to bring them right back anyway. Let's just do it all here and save the gasoline and get it done in an afternoon and be, I be mean, over with it. I, I can't argue with that. Yeah. Right. So that's what they did. All right. And when they sent that uh, information off, it was another couple of weeks before they would get those test results back. In the meantime, Bertha is still incarcerated. And did it say what organs they removed? Uh, the stomach, the liver, the kidneys, maybe some so of the small intestine. They're looking for it's, that damage that you would see from... And, yes. And they saw that exact awesome. same damage from both of them. Okay. Are in both of their remains. So, okay. um, you know, the evidence is starting to pile up. It's not looking good for Bertha at this point. So on top of everything else, at some point, uh, the investigator who is in charge of this case for the Floyd County authorities talks to Bertha's uncle by marriage, I think is correct. It's the woman that he was married to was Bertha's mother, the woman who died back in August of 45. And he says, hey, listen, um, I didn't say anything to Bertha about this, but a couple of weeks ago, I found a bag of these pink crystals buried under a bunch of blankets. Here, you take them and figure out what it is. And I never, and this is one of the questions I want to talk to Katie about later when she gets to her part of this thing, because I never got a definitive answer that anybody tested that and figured out what it was. But certainly the implication, at least in Mike Raglan's book, is that that is the bag of arsenic that she was using to lace the drinks that she was giving them. He found it where? It was under some blankets or under, it was under some blankets under the house. Like in Bertha's house? In Bertha's house. Let's double check that before we print that. That never comes. I know. know. If we go back to the Black Widow, when we were talking about Mm -hmm. Audrey Marie Healy, she had hidden her arsenic in a bag in her sister-in-law's house, right? It was Mm -hmm. the sister-in-law's house under some things. And they were able to say, that's her bag. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just interested in, with Bertha. Are Katie, we gonna have- Katie, let me read you this. And this isn't necessarily for the show. And it's, it's about four sentences. Uh, Frank Russell is the investigator who was in charge of the case for Floyd County. He's, uh, he's the deputy sheriff of Floyd County. I'm reading, this is a quote from his trial transcript. I am a deputy sheriff of this county. I know Reuben McClung. Reuben McClung was the gentleman that I was talking about. That's Bertha's husband. I'm sorry, uncle by marriage. Okay. The bag which you show me previously identified as state's exhibit number two was given to me by Mr. McClung on February 25th, 1946 at Bertha's home. I have kept it since I brought it into court. I saw you yesterday in this courtroom, tear the bag slightly and pour out some of the contents for examination. There was something in the bag when it was turned over to me and the contents of the bag that came out yesterday were pinkish looking and it's the same stuff in it now that was in it the day that it was handed to me. Okay. So, so they don't know exactly what it is. And I never, that's what I'm saying. I never got any sense that anybody brought it up and, and determined, yeah, that's arsenic. It seems like it's an open and shut case at that point. Right. But I never read that. Yeah, I don't think that they determined that it was. Okay. What? Oh, that, or, well, I don't think they determined what it was. Holy it shit. Like. How can you not, you know, I mean, take it to the local hardware store and say, hey, do you sell this by the two pound bag? Yes. Okay. We know what it is. Yeah. But I don't know. I never got to any place where I could see that that just a, just happened. Just a quick little Google search. It doesn't look arsenic is pink at all. Well, now this would have been lead arsenate, which was used as a uh, in, an insecticide until 1947, mostly for the potato beetle I read on Google today. Um, and I don't even know if it's legal anymore or if they even sell it by the bag, or exactly what. And Katie, you're just going to have to piece this all together. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is pink. If you is can't, if what, you lead can't arsenate, buy, boom. Yeah, I mean, I know Google didn't exist. If you can't buy Sudafed without an ID, I doubt you can buy arsenic. But we're talking about 1946. There. I know, but you said today. Oh, sure, yeah, of course not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You probably have to have a, a license from the, from the State Department of Agriculture to buy something like that. Yeah. So there's today. a good chance that this was... Um, this lead arsenate. Yes. Arsenate. Or, yes. Or uh, maybe uh, pink Himalayan salt. <laughs> One or the other. And I don't know how much salt will kill you, but uh, the doctors can tell you how much uh, lead arsenate will. And yeah. it was uh, less than the amount that all three of those people had in their bodies when they died. Oh. So. Um, and there, uh, and I, I'm, I feel like I'm drifting into Katie's part of the case here, but there are several people who testified as to what was, what were things that seemed suspicious to them looking back about the way those three days in the house as Leroy was passing away. Uh, and one woman even says that back when her mother passed away, she said, please don't give me anything else to drink. It's killing me. And what's Bertha saying? Well, there's just not really a lot that Bertha says, and that's another thing that I know has to be a, a leap that Raglan took because he makes up, and he explains in the opening of the book, he makes up a character who is Bertha's cellmate while she's staying in the Floyd County Jail just so that he can try to give the reader of his book some sort of sense of what she might have been thinking while she's sitting there waiting for this all to get played out but there's no record of what she said to a cellmate or to someone, uh, maybe the, the, the jailer's wife or whoever it was that she might have spoken to. But I, Raglan, I get what he's doing. He had, to, he had to let you hear from Bertha at some point. Yeah, I would love to hear from Bertha. Because, what, what, well, I assume, what that Bertha she had, I assume that she had good enough defense attorneys who told her to keep her damn mouth shut. Okay. I, I, I don't know that either. That Katie can tell us in a minute. But I, there's not really a lot that is definitive about... There's you know two sentence... Uh, interview statements from her as she walks out of the courtroom in some of the newspaper articles that I read at the Rome Library last week. But there's just really not that much that she actually had to say. So Mike creates this fictitious cellmate mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
to, you know, just to kind of tinker and, you know, and of course in his narrative, she doesn't say anything that gives anything away. She's like, Oh no, I can't imagine how this happened. And I don't know what's going on. And I'm afraid they're going to blame me. And you know, all the things that you think somebody who's, uh, pleading innocence might say, but we don't know that, or at least nothing that I could find. So what we do know is we have three people dead. Mm-hmm. Very, very similar or yeah. the same. They died from the same yeah, thing. And, and very related to Bertha Hill. And in, various in the ways. house with her. In the house with her. Mm-hmm. So um, it's. And, and I'm, I'm interested to, to know if, if we're going to get to the point of, of why she's doing this. I mean, I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound insensitive, but mm-hmm. the husband, everybody can wrap their head around that. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I've got a husband if he's here fooling around on me. syphilis yeah. and you know, all this. I mean, it's not right. It's not justified. We can wrap our heads around it though. Yeah. The parents, I mean, especially as close as she was to her parents wanting to bring them into her home. That's a, that's another. Well, I can, let's look, through the other end of the telescope at everything you just said, maybe she wanted them close to home so she could slowly, uh, so she could take out life insurance policies on them and slowly over the course of three months, poison them to their death. So I guess the motive is money. Ultimately, I I think. Yeah, I mean, I think she did it. My personal opinion, just based on what I've read, I know it's circumstantial evidence, but it seems to me like, and that's what I don't understand. It seems like it shouldn't just be circumstantial evidence. Maybe that's just how... Maybe they couldn't do a better job in 46 than they did. Maybe they did the very best they could. And it just seems like there's a lot less certainty about how this all played out than there is. And I'm done. And now it's Katie's turn. All right, Katie, tell us what happened. Well, what we know is that there are three people dead. Mm -hmm. Yes. And there are three people dead by poison. Yes. Because that is confirmed from two separate toxicologists. Okay. Okay. Two separate toxicologists testified to their findings that they have found poison in the system of these three people, and that had, that is their cause of death. Okay. So on April 2nd, Bertha Hill is indicted for three counts of murder. And are we, are we in April 2nd of 1946? So not long. So he okay. dies on the 14th of February, and six she's weeks in, later, indicted she's in indicted. April, which yes. is a year after her father passed away. Yes. So, okay. All right, I got you. And... She is, in, she is indicted in April, and that is by a grand jury. So they've already had a grand jury convene, and with what little evidence they have, which is the toxicology reports, really, is, is, is all the evidence at this mm-hmm. point that they really have, they indict her. And this is right after they exhume the bodies of her parents and find the same findings that they found in her husband. Then, on May 3rd, so a month and a day after this, Bertha gets remarried. Was it that soon? I knew that she got remarried. It was that quickly? Mm-hmm. Okay. A month and a day after being indicted? Yes. Who is this guy? His <laughs> name is Wiley Gravett. He is 21 years old. He's a construction worker. And they get Bert- married while she is staying in the Floyd County Jail. Bertha's got a younger dude. Got a younger man. Yeah. And a uh, local judge marries them. She gets to... Wear a nice, pretty blue dress. They have a little wedding, and then she's taken back to her cell. Let her tell I've got you. A, I've got to process what I've just heard. She's she is in jail for possibly she's in jail for murder charges. Yes, poisoning her previous husband to death very slowly. 
very brutally, mm-hmm. by the way. And so we have a, a 21-year-old guy. Was he unaware? I mean, he knew she was in he jail. He knew she was in jail I, because I, that is where the wedding took jail. place. I think she uh, he fell for the same thing that some of the other men in her life had I'm gonna, fallen I'm going to tell you something. Bertha has got game because... That's what I'm saying. How do you even... How do you even... How? How do you date? I don't... Uh, where would how would you... Where would you even start? How do you meet somebody? What What was he... How did yeah. he meet Bertha? I... I I don't know. Was he walking through the jail? Was he? Uh, yeah, I have he, no idea. He would just idea. about have to be. I mean, <laughs> she's right? not going anywhere. She's or not going anywhere. Yeah, or if they met right before she was arrested. Something. I have no idea. Yeah, maybe it was a boyfriend that she had on the side that, you know, nobody knew about for all we know. That's the thing what about something that happened 60 years ago. There's just, you're, you're, yeah. you're taking a stab at it 65 years what ago. What is this? Um, what is this guy's 75. name again? Wiley Gravit. Wiley Gravit. Uh, what a yeah. name. That almost sounds made up, right? <laughs> <laughs> and people, it is documented people saw this person, this this man. Yes. This 21-year-old, yeah, but, young dude. Legally married. Bertha is, but no, Bertha's still in her 20s, Yes, right? yeah. Bert, but yeah. yeah. She, she, she's not, not that yeah. much older. Uh, you know? yeah, we wouldn't Leroy call Hill, Bertha a cougar no. at this point. Leroy she's Hill a, was 28 when he passed away, which is one okay. of the reasons why Dr. Elmore was suspicious about the cause of death because it's not a lot, there's not a lot of 28-year-olds who die from, you know. A stomach virus. Yeah. Severe. Abdominal, severe, mm-hmm. abdom, acute abdominal pains. Yeah, that's not. That's not normal. Oh, and one thing that I forgot to mention earlier, and I don't know how much it's going to play into what Katie's going to say, but there was a lot of uh, confusion about the death certificates. And there was a piece of paper that you were supposed to get if you took somebody from the state of Georgia to the state of Alabama to have them buried, Mm -hmm. which would take days, possibly, or at least a couple of days. She skipped over all of that process. She called her old buddies at Jordan Funeral Home, and I don't mean her old buddies, but people who were familiar with the family. I mean, they know, and they say, okay, you want to bury your loved one, and they're just doing... What they do. Well, but I mean, doesn't Jordan Funeral Home at the time know what's, what the rules are? You can't just go get somebody from st- the state of Georgia and bring them home and drop them in the ground overnight. That's true. That's so true. I, I that was something that know. was a little bit suspicious to me, and okay. I don't know. Uh, but I thought that jumped out, and uh, it happened with all three of them. And that was part of the reason why the further that, that uh, the, the folks over at the Floyd County Sheriff's Department dug, the more suspicious it all seemed. That's just another brick in the wall, I guess. So, and I just forgot to put it so in the wall. So do we think that Bertha, I mean, may have been, you know, charming? I wouldn't charming go that them? far, but no? okay. they just, I think it's just all old country folk out in the middle of nowhere. They don't and know what like, the rules hey, are. It you. doesn't matter. That Poor them. They've, they're, they've lost a relative. Let's not drag them through the, the red it. tape. Let's, Let's make just, it as easy as possible exactly. for the grieving family. Yeah. Sorry, Katie. Okay. So Bertha is going to have a trial, of course. And long story short, she is convicted and she's sentenced to life in prison. Does Wiley want a divorce now? No. He's good with that? Wiley's Wiley's hanging around. Okay. And of course, you know, you have a murder conviction, you got to appeal it. So she appeals her conviction and the appeals court overturns this verdict and orders a new trial. Why? There's an there are some issues and the main thing that gets this verdict overturned is there was an error relating to a disqualification of a juror in the in that oh. in this trial and so she's ordered a new trial. There were there was at least one other person on that jury who had a life insurance policy from the same company that Bertha had bought her husband's life insurance policy from, right? 
It was something about the life insurance policy. I, I don't know exactly. Yeah. I just read that yeah. it was I that should have been a juror should have been disqualified that wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah. Oh. And so we get a new trial and Bertha is put on trial again and she is convicted once more and sentenced to life. While he's still there. He's still holding on. Yep. He's still here. Okay. And uh-huh. this whole time she's in the Floyd County Jail still. They haven't sent her off to prison or anything. And she's also still charged with the murders of her parents. She still has two other murder charges left out there, but she there's not been a trial set for those yet. And so in June of 47, she is sent off to prison. And she's got a defense attorney at this time named Mark Hicks. And he files some motions. He demands a trial to be set for the murder charges for her parents. And he states that the defendant has repeatedly sought these trials, but has been refused, and she wants to be put on trial for these murders. Um, Says that her constitutional rights have been violated and that the courts have deprived her of her right for parole because you, the state pardon and parole board of Georgia at the time, and may still be this way, it won't act on any application for, for, for parole if there is a felony indictment pending in the courts. She had two other felony indictments for murder pending in the courts. So okay, so that makes sense why she's wanting to right. speed this up. She wants to, she wants to uh, petition for parole. Well, she's got things to do. Yeah. She's newly married. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. And she was uh, otherwise eligible, actually, at this time for parole. She'd been incarcerated for four years. So at four years, she could apply for parole. Okay. Okay, so we're, we're into 1950 now. Right. We are in, uh, we are in forty-eight. Forty-eight. Okay. Okay. No, no, no. Okay. No, no, no. I'm sorry. No, it'd have to be fifty. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we're in fifty. Yeah, 50. but I'm gonna 50. back up to 1948. Okay. Where she had another appeal, and it went all the way up to the Georgia Supreme Court, and they voted four to three to withhold her guilty verdict. Oh, that was close. Very close. Mm-hmm. So, she almost got another trial. And right. Just another confusing thing that I don't understand. It seems so cut and dry, but there's so much doubt it, for some reason about whether and or not what, she's guilty, and I still don't understand that part. Maybe we will bef- before the show's over. What took it all the way to the Supreme Court that time? Because the first time it was a, a, a juror that should have been dismissed. Right. What about the second trial? What was the... Was it just the, the simple fact of, yeah, and we're is just, she guilty or not? Yeah, they wanted to look at the second trial and make sure everything was, mm-hmm. you know... Because when you appeal a case, you're not appealing the facts of the case. Okay. You're appealing the, the handle of the trial. Okay. Okay. And so they vote four to three to um, stand by her guilty verdict. Okay. So now we are in 1950 where, they're, you know, the new defense attorney is, or her defense attorney is wanting these trials for her parents Murders. Yeah, let's get this show on the road. He in 1952, instead of giving her a trial for these murders, the indictments are dropped. In 1958, she wins a third trial. All right. Why? So, there is a new judge at the time because the current judge was actually her old defense attorney. So of course he can't preside over the case. He has to recuse himself and they get a judge in here and we got um I didn't find his full name. Judge David is what I have. 
he states is that, his last name David? Yes, I okay. think so. Okay. I hope so. Judge, that's what I. That's Judge what my David. notes have. He's like Judge Judy. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I hope I'm just not totally wrong. It doesn't really matter. But the judge at the time, he states that the case rested entirely on circumstantial evidence and that there was no evidence in the record that Bertha Hill ever had arsenic in her possession. I mean, he's not wrong, Scott. Is he? Well, and see, just another confusing thing because the, I've, I read you guys that testimony earlier from oh, the... Oh, okay, about the But the uncle of, said he found arsenic. Yeah. Under so, some blankets. Yeah, right. Who knows if he put the arsenic there? I got you. Who knows Who, if he... I mean, no what, one, is he no doing one it? saw him yeah. find that arsenic. He's also related to these people. Yeah. And they only had the arsenic he brought to him. He didn't bring them to where he found it. There was okay. absolutely zero evidence that she ever had arsenic in her possession. They never found any in the house, except what this uncle claims to have found and brought to them. Mm-hmm. They never found any. And if you compare this anywhere. to Audra Marie Hilly, to the Black Widow, they actually, she had it in her purse. Right, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. I mean, that's a... That's your smoking gun. Yeah. That's the... I mean, well, maybe I guess we should change it. That's the arsenic in your purse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the smoking gun. We have a new phrase. That's going to be a t-shirt. That's okay. the arsenic That's in your the purse. arsenic in your purse. But Bertha, we didn't find, no we didn't arsenic. find that. No arsenic. So, I mean, he's not wrong. He also references the closeness in that Supreme Court vote previously on how even they were like neck and neck on whether she should have got a new trial or the last time, the last appeal around. Do you think they were getting clouded by that? By the, the fact that it's circumstantial? Yes, I think so. I think that, that was part of their, of, you know, they were looking at it like, where, where, what's the evidence? Where's the evidence? Mm-hmm. And then we get to some transcripts from the second trial and their inconsistencies. And there were some recounts of jurors' votes that were mishandled. Because you had to have a unanimous juror vote, and they claimed to have had that. Then we have other jurors who are claiming that they did not vote guilty. And you've got one claim from a juror that states that he was coerced, and he did not want to vote guilty, and he was forced to. And the judge states that the law of this state requires the unanimous verdict of all 12 jurors should be freely and voluntarily acknowledged without hesitation, reluctance, or evasive answers to the court. So, I mean, you got to really, you know, vote. Like, you can't be you got to have you- 12 people saying, it is my opinion, guilty, yeah. not guilty. And so, they had three different jurors come forward and say, I did not vote guilty. Oh, my or, I goodness. did not want to vote and this guilty. And is, this is in the second trial? Yes. Okay. It's from the second trial. All right. So. She is ordered a third trial. And in this time, she's brought back to Rome, Georgia. Okay. Does Wiley live there? I believe so. I'm just really concerned with you. You're very concerned about it. I can't let it go. Was it Wiley Grabit? Grabit. Something like that. Grabit. G-R-A-V-I-T-T. Grabit. Could be Gravit. That doesn't make it much better. (laughs) So, this is in 1958. They decide she's going to get a new trial. By 1959, they set her a bond, and she makes bond. Because they... Why did they set her a bond? Well, with the new trial coming out, she's brought back to Rome, Georgia, and they agree to let her out on bond. Yeah, so she's just 
Because she's awaiting a new trial. So they set her a bond, a $5,000 bond, and she and makes she bond. Said, I got this. And then while she's out on bond, she gets that divorce, Kelly. Oh. Yeah. It, it was going so well for uh, them. Why did she they goes, get a divorce? It doesn't really say, but. <laughs> she didn't need him anymore because they wouldn't let. Tell me if I'm getting this right. They would, back in the 40s in the state of Georgia, a woman couldn't be bonded out unless she was either married or had a job to go back out to. Oh, right? yeah. <sighs> so she needed to be married in case she ever got the chance to get out on bond. And then when she did, she didn't need to be married anymore. Yeah. So she divorced him. Yes. And goes back to her maiden. I feel, I feel bad for him. Well, I'm glad that you've got this part of this whole operation covered. Poor old Willie Gravit. This poor dude. <laughs> Wiley. Wiley. Wiley, Wiley, Gravit. Wiley. We I'm got sorry. three dead bodies. She's worried about the husband. I, well, I, I'm, just, I'm fascinated by this one little detail <laughs> yeah. that I can't get past. I, I'll, I'll shut up. She, no, don't, please. It's when great. she's released on bond, though, her trial was supposed to begin very shortly after her release. And the prosecution or the state, they're not prepared. They're not ready. They don't have the, their evidence in line. They don't have their witness testimony in line. And so they filed to postpone the trial. Okay. And the state can do that. I mean, yeah. I mean, they're not ready. They're not ready. <laughs> They've got to, you know, yeah. get their ducks in a row, so to speak. So they postponed this trial, and then they worked to gather witness testimony. They worked to gather their evidence, and this is in 1959. And by January of 1960, they acquit her. They're like, just forget it. We don't have our own. The prosecution. That's basically what happened, right? They just said, well, sorry, we can't get our shit together, so let her go. <laughs> the prosecution we don't want to dig in this anymore. That it's too much time has passed, and they can't get enough witness testimony together. Well, They're, I mean, it's 1960. 1960. It's been 14 People are years. like, I don't remember. Yep. Mm-hmm. That was 14 years ago. And a lot of those older people may have passed on by then or some of that some of those mm-hmm. family members who were there when those when those deaths happened in mm-hmm. Bertha's home mm-hmm. maybe they were maybe they've moved on to their so next So she's life. acquitted in 1960. She's acquitted. And she is a free lady. And she goes to work at the local store owned by her former defense attorney. <laughs> Gives her a job. It also says that she must I think she does a little housework for him maybe. Is this Judge David? This is Mark Hicks. Oh, Mark Hicks. That was I'm the guy sorry, who was, he was her judge. defense attorney in the mm-hmm. second trial. Oh, okay, yes, okay, and okay. he actually went on to be a judge, and that okay. is, but he couldn't preside yeah. over her case. Okay, okay but, gotcha, gotcha. But yeah, and I was like, what in the Shane Givens is this? Like, I could just <laughs> like. <laughs> well, but you know, that makes me think that if, if this former defense attorney of hers who'd gone on to be a judge, a respected member of the community, if he's willing to be the first one to reach out and offer her a helping hand after she gets paroled what kind of store is give it? her a job like it's a like convenience a convenience yeah like a, it's well it, yeah <laughs> like drinks. a like a five and dime <laughs> yeah like a on, five and, on, i think they called it a five and dime like on five, broad okay. street in the 50s 60s and so bertha works there and she she cleans also does a little housekeeping but if for he's him. gonna let her for him he, he's letting this woman into his home to clean his house maybe he thinks she was innocent all along i don't oh, know another yeah. just another That's confusing trust. aspect to, yeah exactly so i don't know Okay, and and so then Bertha just spends out her days in five and dime housekeeping bliss. I mean, what? what and Bar- well, Bertha the store. Did, what act- the heck? The store actually closes not entirely too long after all of this. 
But then Bertha just... I wonder if it was because people didn't want to come shop. <laughs> yeah, is it times they are a change or don't go there, Bertha works there. Bertha Th- Whatever works you do, there. don't drink the coffee. Oh, gosh. But she's gone back to her maiden name, so if you didn't just know her, you may not know that because her name yeah. isn't the same as what it was in the papers and everything okay. at this time. Yeah. But then she just kind of falls off the grid. I even found an article in one of the local newspapers where someone was looking for her. Really? Like, wanting to know the end of her story. Like, it was it was a, basically like a, it was literally a piece that was like, you know, we can we we can do all this. And it could have been the guy who wrote the book. I need to go back. I'm Maybe it was Mike cut. Raglan who was looking for her. But, and did, do we have a death date for Bertha? I don't. Mm, I don't either. Yeah. But surely if she was, if she was, if she was, if she was 25 and 46 and she was born in 1920 or 21. So surely either she's a hundred years old or she's passed on. I right? don't, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Wow. There's just, we just don't know. She was. I'll bet somebody out there knows and I'll bet somebody can email us when they hear this episode on Wednesday and or Thursday or Friday or whenever or they today to as it. you're listening. Oh yeah, sorry. It's Monday here. It's Wednesday <laughs> true, to you. True crime on easy street at gmail.com. Yes. And tell us what happened to Bertha. And and tell us what happened to, to Wiley. I want to know what happened to Wiley. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did he find love? Did someone finally love him and not use him? Bless poor Wiley. I mean, because he was devoted. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Scott, <laughs> maybe uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I want to know what happened to both of them. So, guys, this is a great story today. Thank you so much for telling us. Well, it's always more fun when we just kind of wing it. I mean, I, I, when I wing it, Katie never wings it. You never wing it, but I have more fun when I wing it. This so, is, thanks, guys. This was um, interesting. I mean, we have no idea what became of Bertha, or she was or, a free woman. She died a free woman. Yeah. I'm assuming she's dead. Assuming she's dead or yeah. she's over 100. Right. Something yeah. like that. So. And uh, don't forget to uh, say hi to us on our Facebook page. We share things every day between the three of us. We take turns on Facebook and yes. share things. And We love all of the suggestions you keep yeah. giving us. Throw and we some want comments to keep, at us. Keep doing that and email us. Check us out on, um, well, wherever you're listening right now. Yeah, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Give Google us a five-star review or, and give us a rating. Like, yeah. give us a five-star review, but then say, like, type words yeah. so that we know that you've given us the five-star. You can even just type words. Yeah. The and, word. And just words. make sure you edit them, especially since we've got our eye on what everybody's spelling uh, <laughs> oh, grammar looks like these days. It's fine. We really don't care. Scott <laughs> might, but I nah, don't care. We don't care. We don't care. And hey, guys, I'm just going to give you a little foreshadowing for this, this month. We got some very interesting cases to get you ready for Thanksgiving. Are you going to tell uh, me? Because I don't know. You know how people... We'll tell Scott when you, you need to know. You know okay. how people... <laughs> yeah. You know how people go to grandma's for Thanksgiving? Yeah. Uh-huh. Just keep that in mind. Oh, got okay. it. Okay. Right. Is that it? Are we done? We're done. All right. Good night, everybody. <laughs>